I'm Daniel Chacon. Welcome to Words on a Wire. Today, my guest is a legend in Latinx literary culture, fiction, uh, especially. It's Kathleen Alcala. She is the author of six books of fiction and nonfiction, and she has received the Western States Book Award, the Governor's Writers Award, the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Association Book Award. Uh, she received her second Artist Trust Fellowship in one in 2008, one in 2014. And uh, here's one I really love, this detail about your bio, Kathleen. She has been designated an island treasure yes. on, in the arts on Brainbridge <laughs> Island. Wow, an island treasure. How many writers can say that? <laughs> I don't know. And um, the best thing about it is it comes with a tiara. <laughs> oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. Once a year, they they have an event, and they call us all up ahead of time and say, be sure and bring your tiara. So um, you live on an island. Tell me about the island. And I, I imagine the island can be a very spiritual experience. It can be. Um, I'm very fortunate. I heard of the island near Seattle, I guess starting when I was in college, and I thought, oh, that sounds so ideal. What a place to live. (laughs) And so, um, let's see, in 1983, my husband and I moved to Seattle, and we lived there for 13 years. And then we started looking around Bainbridge Island, which is a half hour west of Seattle by ferry. Um, And it's in the middle of Puget Sound, which is a big bathtub. This is impossible to describe without looking at a map, but there's this sort of inland sea that has three islands in it, and Bainbridge is the one closest to downtown Seattle. Bainsbridge, and it takes you a half an hour to get to Seattle by boat? Yes. Is it a ferry boat, I assume? It's a ferry boat. Wow. Can you walk from one part of the island to the other? Um, You can walk pretty far. Uh, You know, roads have, have cut it up more than used to be the case uh, when it was just indigenous people. And by the way, this is Suquamish land that we're on. And um, the Suquamish headquarters is just west of here. But at that time, when it was just the indigenous people, there were walking paths all over the island. And even with the early white settlers, people used canoes and boats to get from one part of the island to the other because there were no paved roads. So um, the high schoolers who lived uh, in another part of the island would row a boat across Eagle Harbor to go to high school. Okay, this is going to sound like a crazy question, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I'm picturing those paths that are ancient and that were, that were, you know, the feet of the indigenous are the ones that created those paths. And yes. as we know, our indigenous ancestors are much more in touch with the energy of the landscape and the the spiritual aspect, if you will, of the landscape. And I'm wondering if you've ever walked down a path uh, uh, and just felt some sort of presence that has, I don't know, I don't even know what to call it, but have you felt that kind of presence of the past? I would say that the whole island is full of that presence. My, um, My last book is called The Deepest Roots, Finding Food and Community on a Pacific Northwest Island. And it's about our relationship with the land. Um, The one story I can tell you that 
comes to mind is um, there was a time when my husband was on the city council and they were looking at a lot of these known paths and working on keeping them open to the public as opposed to being, you know, fenced off in, to private lots. And um, he took me out to one of these road ends, as they're called, and um, it had been a place where strawberries were grown by one of the Japanese-American families, mm. the Kura family, K-O-U-R-A. And um, people would come from British Columbia, indigenous people, First Nations people, they're called there, mm-hmm. to pick berries. Wow. Um, and there's a long story behind that. Um, but they built these little huts, basically, to live in, and they're still there. And you can go and see uh, these places. And then um, I remember thinking, if you crouch down, you can look across the land, and it's still divided into these even roads where they used to grow strawberries, which were a major crop, major cash crop for Bainbridge for many years. And there was just something about that, about looking at, at the lay of the land and how those roads were still so uniform so many years later. And I thought, there was just a, a breathing presence of all the people who came before and who've worked this land so hard, and also people who appreciated all the things that can grow in this climate. And right now we're facing another one of these heat domes in the Northwest. Mm. And I've been thinking about how this has been such an abundant land, and it's getting to be harder and harder for these plants and animals to hang on. Wow. Well, you know, it must have been, or it must be, a, you know, an incredibly uh, enriching experience and, and certainly not unconnected to what you're able to do in your fiction, to be able to go into, uh, shall we say, realms that are not ordinary, uh, ordinarily detected. Uh, you just came out with, and that's why we're here today, to talk about your, your reissue of Spirits of the Ordinary, a novel that you wrote a while back, but that is being reissued. And you have one character who is incredibly intuitive, and she tells her husband, her name is, uh, I think her name is uh, Mariana, she tells her husband um, yes. that she doesn't dream, because he woke up with this really weird dream that he had. And she goes, oh, I don't dream. But then the narrator says, to be more precise, and this is an exact quote, she always dreamed because she was always aware of the signs and symbols around her, the omens and signifiers that are revealed to most of us only in a dream state. She grasped the meaning of the look that accompanied the word, and here I love this, smelled the rot beneath the perfume of a flower, saw the spider beneath the rock. Mariana saw in every wing beat, every iridescent color in a feather, the meaning of the world. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Mariana is uh, the mother of, who I guess is one of the two main protagonists in this novel, Spirits of the Ordinary. And um, because of an early trauma, uh, when she was, uh, well, I don't know, tortured, but certainly um, uh, bullied by mm-hmm. school children for being of Jewish background, and she loses her ability to speak. She becomes mute, but she can still communicate with a form of sign language with her own family. And she's so attuned to the world around her in a way that was unusual for that era 
that, yeah, she doesn't really need to dream. Most of us need to, need to take refuge <laughs> in dreaming, right? right? Yeah. Um, but she's there. She's so present that the world sort of presents its beauty to her, mm. and, and she takes it gracefully. She accepts it gracefully. You know, it reminds me of a of a quote from Edgar Allan Poe, who, you know, uh, according to most of his biographers, went back and forth between you know intense uh, <laughs> addictions to uh, ordinary things like alcohol and and uh, you know pleasure, to these incredible mystical moments where he could discover things like uh, the solution to Ober's paradox, you know, which even physicists couldn't understand, you know, why. The sky is dark at night if you know if uh, if light is traveling towards us, and he just discovered it uh, based on his musings. But one of the things that he said, he says that. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, he had some incredible <laughs> metaphysical journeys, uh, which is, I think, if you even see any greatness in him, that's the reason why. Uh, but anyway, he said that those who dream at night, only at night, are at a disadvantage than those who dream during the day. Oh, that's a great quote. Yeah. 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 Um, I knew, knew that he was very popular in the 19th century, late 19th century, um, and much better regarded in Europe than he ever was in the United States. Definitely. And this book, Spirits of the Ordinary, um, it's a brand new issuing of it, and there's an introduction by Rigoberto Gonzalez, who, of course, is another legend in Latinx literature. Uh, and he's, he, he, he writes, I love this quote, a timeless book whose return is timely. Uh, <laughs> can we talk first a little bit about why this book, uh, why you're reissuing this book, or how it came about, the story of how this book is seen a second life? Well, um, it's been out of print for some time. And um, it was first published by Chronicle Books and then picked up in, in paperback um, for some time. But, you know, time passes and books fall out of print. Mm -hmm. And people kept asking for it. So, actually, this was a benefit of the lockdown during the pandemic. Um, I was able to trap the, the lawyers at Chronicle Books at home. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody great. could go anywhere. Trap right? the lawyers. I love it. <laughs> this was about March. And um, they said, okay, if you can find copies of your original contracts, we'll give you all the rights back. Wow. So sure enough, in my closet, I have a, a folder labeled contracts. And um, so I, I dug them out and sent them copies, and they gave me all the rights back to my books. Wow. Um, that so, is, that's amazing. You still had the contracts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would think most writers would their early contracts. Well, not this one. I don't have a single contract from any of the books that I published. I get them and then I, you know, throw them out, or they just kind of get lost. Oh well, your <laughs> office is probably neater than mine in that case. I have tried to something. Oh, it's it's going out. I'm not sure if we're hearing that, but I kind of heard you go out a little bit. But, but oh, sorry. Uh, no, no, I, it was the connection. So anyway, yeah, and so. Why did you feel it was a good time for for this to come back? And first of all, let me let me kind of give a little bit of uh, uh, just very very brief overview, and I'll let you actually give the you know a, a better overview. But this this book deals with a, a a Jewish family, 
a Jewish Mexican family um, in Mexico, uh, and the ones in the family that acknowledge their Judaism and want to practice it have to do it in hiding. Uh, because there's a lot of anti-Semitism in their community, and I guess just in 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 the world in general. So why why reissue this book now? Well, for several reasons, but one of them is that about five years ago, Spain decided to offer citizenship as reparations to the descendants of Jews who were expelled from Spain in 1492. Wow! I don't think. <laughs> I don't think that they had any idea of what kind of a response they were going to get to this. I think they thought, oh, you know, we'll, we'll have these requirements that they have to prove genealogy and, and direct descent, and maybe a couple of thousand people will apply for this. And um, I think several hundred thousand people wow. applied. Wow. <laughs> and a lot maybe. of them from Mexico, because there are a uh, a lot of uh, Sephardic Jews is that is that yes. uh, the, yes. that that settled in Mexico and had to either hide their religion or or eventually ended up losing it. Yes, and also New Mexico and other parts wow. of the Southwest. So um, this is based on my family history. The whole idea for writing this book came out of my family history, and um, I'm so old that doing the research for this in the 1990s. Um, was all in person, right? We didn't have the internet. We didn't have, <laughs> I remember those days. <laughs> all, these, all these digital files. So, uh, so everything I did was based on interviews and um, research in old books. And I had thought, you know, I'd heard these stories in the family and kind of thought, yeah, yeah, you know, everybody's special. Everybody wants to be something romantic. And then I discovered that, in fact, these stories were really true. Uh, there was plenty of, of proof to go behind it. So um, so time passed, and just at the end of the period that they were going to be offering this, you know, such a deal on citizenship, uh, my son said, oh, we should apply for this. <laughs> and mm. I said, what? <laughs> and he said, you know, uh, Spain is a member of the um, European Union. Oh, yeah, you can go to France and to all kinds of different countries, just hop, 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 and not have to worry about a passport. <laughs> exactly. And so at first I thought, really? And then I thought, you know, it's it's such a different world for him. He's 31 now, mm-hmm. and um, he's really more a citizen of the digital world and has traveled much more than I will ever travel. And I can understand his orientation. Um not wanting to have, you know, his citizenship chopped up into these little increments of this country or this mm-hmm. country or this country. So he said, let's apply together. It'll be fun. And I'm like, uh, okay. Wow. <laughs> so, so it's been a tremendous amount of paperwork. Um, but I've also learned a ton that I didn't know before. So... Um, Yes, I have these ancestors who can be traced all the way back uh-huh. to, you know, the person who, hiding his identity, hiding her identity, got on a boat leaving Spain or Portugal and came over to Mexico. You know, what an interesting thing I find about your story, not just this novel, which is, uh, you know, just blew me away, but also your, your personal story. Um, it's It's not that you know, suddenly this Judaism came out of nowhere. It's been there all your life. In fact, I know there's a story that you told where you were a 
child and you were reading the Old Testament and you said to your mom, I want to be Jewish. Yeah. Isn't that interesting that I would say that at the <laughs> age of nine? <laughs> so, you know, some part of me must be an old soul because, you know, I looked back on that and I thought, what brought that on? Uh, and so, in her way, she explained it. She said, "Yes, we, meaning ancestrally, the whole you know accordionness of our family, used to be Jewish, but now we're not." Right. Um, and sort of left it at that. And and as you started to do all this, tons and tons of paperwork that they, the Spanish government was asking you to do in order to to for them to make a decision whether or not they're going to grant you citizenship. I imagine you uncovered a lot of things, and but it, the last time you wrote about it, it was still pending. You wrote about it a little bit in the introduction. How's it going now? Are you a Spanish citizen yet? I am not a Spanish <laughs> citizen yet, but my son is. Oh, my God. So his went through already. Uh, I don't know why. I mean, we, wow. we ran all our paperwork. We kept saying, you know, we want our papers processed at the same time. You know, we're a package deal. And um, for some reason, he looked about two weeks ago on the website, and his had been accepted. That's all he says, you know. And mine just says registered, which hasn't changed. Shows I've turned in all my paperwork. So uh, then the next step that he was wondering about, finally I had to call up the the honorary consul in Seattle, is uh, there's another step where you go to the consulate, and um, pick up a visa, and then you're officially a Spanish wow. citizen. So that has yet to happen for him. Wow, wow. But it sounds like it's, it's, it's on its way. Uh, I'm talking to right. Kathleen Alcala, whose re- who's, who's fantastic novel, Spirits of the Ordinary, uh, has just been reissued from Raven Chronicles Press, I believe. Um, I imagine as you're discovering more about your past and about the Jewish history of your Mexican family, your Mexican antepasados, that being what appears to me as a a mystical, spiritual person, or at least somebody open to mystic experience, that it might have led you to look a little bit at Jewish mysticism. And I'm thinking about specifically your quote of the Zohar in in this book. It opens with a quote in the Zohar, as everybody uh, should know is the one of the primary texts of of Kabbalah. Uh, did you start to 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 study that a little bit? And 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 then there's even a character in your novel that studies alchemy, which of course is very connected to Kabbalistic uh, uh, thoughts and origins. Did you go into that? Uh... Did I plunge into yet another world? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Another... <laughs> the, the answer is not really. I've just sort of skimmed through through some of that information. Uh, because, well, um, it, traditionally in Jewish practice, a- assuming you're a male, right, to start with, you're mm-hmm. supposed to be married and at least 40 years old before you start to study um, Jewish mysticism. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I, other than not being male, I, I qualify <laughs> now. <laughs> so uh, one of these days I will I will get farther into it. There, There are aspects of it that we already know in, in common knowledge, mm-hmm, like right. the, the notion of tikkun olam, right? Right. Which is the notion of repairing the world, and that comes out of the same practice. Right, right. Um, this notion that we, as individuals, 
can do things, can actively work to help improve the world. So uh, that's the sort of thing that I, I've tried to adhere to uh, as opposed to buying another pile of hugely expensive books plunging <laughs> <laughs> into this practice at this point. Oh, yeah. And the practice of Kabbalah is definitely a lot more uh, complex and almost as if you're going into <laughs> alchemy uh, than is just you know the basic uh, concepts that come out of uh, uh, Kabbalah that might have influenced other mystic systems, or even if they didn't influence them, that correlate to other mystic uh, systems. Yes, I, I was going to say, uh, certainly with, with yoga, w- in, which is only practiced on the very peripheries in the United States as a sort of physical exercise that's supposed to be good for you. Uh, yoga that's, that's really practiced has um, a lot of literature and a lot of um, non-physical practice that goes with it. So I would say that's equivalent to uh, practice and, and study of Kabbalah. Right, absolutely. And like, um, what's his name, Blake, William Blake said, you know, hundreds of years ago that all religions are the same, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, I think so. I think that uh, if you really drill down into the heart of it, um, religion is is that part of us that is that recognizes our humanity and also recognizes um, the unity of our humanity. Yeah, and all religious systems have a a, a mystical uh, element to it that sometimes isn't practiced in the mainstream uh, religious practice, but that there's always been. Uh, Sufi Muslims and Kabbalist Jews and Swedenborgian Christians that have right. gotten deeper into this. And I, I just love your book. And, and one of the things that you you taught me that I didn't know about was the term crypto-Judaism. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and how it fits into the novel? Can you tell us about that? Um, Crypto-Judaism is a scholarly term for hidden Jews. So um, when people got on the boats to run away from Spain um, and become settlers in the New World, they stopped outwardly telling people that they were Jews um, and took up Catholicism as their outward religious practice. But in secret um, and in private, they continued with the the, uh, practices and rituals and prayers of Judaism. And Judaism in particular loans itself to a home-based practice, a private practice. Uh, And so uh, in that way, the practice and the knowledge of who these people were was passed down from generation Mm -hmm. to generation. So crypto-Jew really just means hidden Jew. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's definitely uh, the family you're writing about in this, or at least some of the family members that you're writing about in this. How, how, yes. how long did it take you to write this novel, and uh, uh, how long was it out of print before it came back? Well, let's see. Um, it took me from 1992 to 1997 to write it and get it published. Wow, so, that's commitment. Um, <laughs> you know, and that, that includes the research and all, all that right. sort of thing. Um, and then, um, so it's been out of print for about 20 years. And um, it just seemed like the right time to bring it back, as yeah. as this notion of the crypto Jew was becoming um, more widely known. There have been some popular books now published on the subject, 
and um, a lot of fictional accounts written by by people who think it's kind of a romantic notion, mm-hmm. um, which is problematic in a way, I suppose, uh, because uh, it's it's a portrait of a people that I think should be mostly done by the people themselves. Mm. Right. And how is this novel being received today vis-a-vis when it first came out? Um, it's being received very well. I've been surprised even at the number of people willing to um, review a previously published novel. So there have been maybe eight to ten uh, wonderful reviews, I have to say. The most recent I have received is, was in the Tupelo Quarterly um, by a reviewer named uh, Shen Nakai. And um, I think what is this time around is that more people are familiar with this concept. When mm. the book first right. came out, people were going, oh, we didn't know there were any Jews in Mexico. Right, right. <laughs> we didn't know there were any Jews in New Mexico. And so... We had to explain, you know, from the beginning, from the beginning, um, who we are and um, who we are today. So there's a more general understanding, I think, of uh, the complexity, I guess, of ancestry that is being regarded on a larger scale across the country now. As we we look at these ideas of who are we, and also. Um, what can we understand about our ancestors? This is true of um, African Americans in the United States. This mm-hmm. is true of Asian Americans in the United States. Um, and it's also true of um, Sephardic Jews in the United States. The name of the book is Spirits of the Ordinary. It is a reissue of a novel uh, from the 90s, I believe, right? Um, yes, if I'm, 1997. If uh, by Kathleen Alcala with a f- new forward by Rigoberto Gonzalez. And I have to completely agree with him when he says um, that uh, this is uh, a-, a timeless book whose return is timely. It's the kind of novel that if you are willing to enter into it, you are going to spend a lot of time in this world that sometimes gets a little crazy, but uh, you never lose your place. Thank you for this novel. What's next for Kathleen Alcala? What are you working on now? Thank you, Daniel, for, for um, taking interest in this novel. Right now, I'm um, happily or sadly writing two novels at the same time, <laughs> which I don't recommend. Um, one is um, set in Spain uh, before the Reconquistador, Reconquista, um, and um, it's based on a biography of Al-Mutabadi ibn Abad, who was the last uh, Muslim ruler of uh, Sevilla. Wow. Yeah. That, there uh, goes. I, you, do, you, a, do you geek out on the research? Do you, do you geek out on it? I think yeah, so, I do. <laughs> totally. To- totally into research. Wow. Um, and the other is um, kind of a science fiction-y book. Um, called Los Voladores. Do you Ooh, know who they are? No. Los Voladores are the men who fly. There's a whole ritual around it. Oh, the ones in Mexico City that that that, that fly outside of the um, 
the Museum of uh, Anthropology. Yeah, they jump off a pole. Oh, yeah, right? those guys are yeah. amazing. Yeah, and so um, I got really interested in this. I saw it in Aguascalientes when I was visiting relatives some years ago, and I realized recently that the whole uh, ritual, and we were talking earlier about ritual, this is part of a very elaborate um, pre-colonial ritual that has continued in practice today. And I realized that it would act as a backbone for a novel mm. to two of my characters. What well, wow. three of my characters? Well, they I have can't. A cat. They have a cat that talks. <laughs> oh, yeah. I have a cat that talks, too. Well, Kathleen, thank you for joining us on Words on a Wire, and uh, I hope to get you back on the show when both of these novels are done. I'd like to thank you for joining us. I'd like to thank our producer, Sam Cassiano. I'm Daniel Chacon. We'll see you next time on Words on a Wire. (laughs) 